Welcome to Soil to Soil, a podcast connecting the dots in the life cycle of clothing and material culture, brought to you by Fibershed. Each episode offers a look at how and why our community is working to cultivate fiber systems that build soil and protect the health of our biosphere. Today's conversation focuses on how our material culture, what we wear, and the products we use connect to the carbon cycle itself. I'm Jess Daniels, and I'm joined today by Jim Jensen, who is a sixth-generation rancher at Jensen Ranch and Tamales Sheep Company in Marin County, California. Jim shares how agricultural production actually follows the carbon cycle, if you look closely enough, and he discusses some of the practices and tools he's using to enhance the flow of carbon from the atmosphere and into the soil. As you'll hear, Jensen Ranch wool is now available in several home goods, and it's combined with wool from Stemple Creek Ranch, both of whom are practicing carbon farming, so that product relationship is directly supporting the ranches in sequestering over 470 metric tons of CO2 equivalent per year. And it's not just about carbon. Jim describes the co-benefits he experiences, like capturing and storing more water, creating resilience and an adaptation to drought, and challenges faced by land managers. So it all ties together. Jim is also the stewardship manager at the Marin Agricultural Land Trust, or MALT, where he works at the local and regional level on land stewardship and conservation planning efforts. And we talk about how MALT and other partner organizations are supporting farmers and ranchers to adopt practices that build soil carbon and so much more. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Since your great, great, great grandfather started Jensen Ranch back in 1856, I think it's pretty safe to say that ranching and land management in Marin is nothing new for you. But I'm curious if you could share how you came to see or understand the carbon management piece and that process. Sure, it's a, it's a great question and something I think may have been lost for a while. Uh, it's, you know, it's an honor, first of all, I'm really fortunate that my ancestors settled there and somehow, whether it was, whether they wanted to or not, uh, every generation since then has decided to, to stay there. And, you know, I think going away helped me realize what a, what a beautiful and amazing place it is and what, what really an honor it is to, <laughs> to work on the same land that, you know, your ancestors did. And really, it's just, um, it's an honor to kind of manage land in general. And I think that's something that our generation is realizing, but there may have been, you know, a few previous generations, not at their fault, but just where, you know, the farmer was kind of looked down upon. So now I think we're reconnecting with our food systems and really, you know, understanding the importance of that, or at least, you know, in some ways, you know, Fiber Shed's a great example of that. So, you know, it's been an honor growing up on the ranch. It was a, a potato farm years ago when my ancestors settled there because they came from Ireland and that's what they knew how to do. But of course they left from the potato famine there and ended up here. Then, you know, as this region was famous for, it transitioned into dairy, uh, making cheese, butter, and shipping those those things to the city. Um, and then over time transitioned into a livestock operation and my grandfather was a livestock dealer. So he would visit ranches throughout the area and that's when they would take cows down to the city. And it was kind of more of a direct to consumer route that we've kind of lost touch with. So um, it's kind of interesting that things are cycling back and I know we'll probably get to that more, but maybe they 
did kind of have things figured out, even though uh, they didn't have the technology that we have today. And there is kind of this cycle that's happening from livestock management and or land management and product relationships, getting more transparency and more clarity. And it seems like the soil carbon piece or the carbon cycling piece is another layer that's kind of an addition or a, a new lens to look at these historic practices. How did you come to learn about that lens or start seeing it that way on your land? Sure. So, you know, I, uh, growing up on the ranch, it was just, it's kind of never ending chores. You look outside and it's a certain time of the year and you have to get the sheep in to shear them or you have to work on the lambs to get them ready for market. And the whole cycle is really based around the carbon cycle. You know, when you have your, your breeding season, when you do all these different things to your livestock, but there's so much focus on your animals and the animal husbandry that sometimes you lose track of actually focusing on your soil and on your forage and, and your grass and your, your resources. You just look at your animals because that's really at the end of the year, what, what pays your bills and what you're trying to make a living on. Everything else is just work. You have to fix fence. You have to clean up the tree that fell over in the storm. And so growing up, it was, you know, it's never ending chores and you focused on your animals because at the end of the year, you got one check, you know, uh, or maybe two if you sell a few direct to someone or things like that. And, and you know, maybe we we're diversified. We had a few cows also and really just based you know, we based our grazing season off the carbon cycle without really thinking about it that way. You know, we had most of our animals and our lambs born in December so that they would be growing as the, the spring growth flush was growing. So everything was in, on track with nature. But a lot of farming and ranching was, is always kind of fighting nature. And I think, you know, looking, getting back to the carbon cycle, you really realize that it's all about managing the soil and your resources, your water, your forage, because those will help solve other problems. Just like with humanity, if we have healthier food, we're going to have healthier people, you know, or more nutrient dense. Um, so that's, you know, I know those are big kind of philosophical things and it's easy to, easy to talk about, but we've obviously gotten away from that. So I really learned, yeah, I went to school and studied natural resources management and I, I thought, I wanted to get into wildland fire, which is um, obviously a big topic right now. And that also helped me learn about the carbon cycle. We did um, in the summers, I worked for the National Park Service doing wildland firefighting on a fuels crew. I did hell attack. I worked on a hotshot crew and traveled around the West seeing forest management in national parks, different methodologies and different approaches to trying to manage fire and fuels. And in the winter, I was always working on the sheep ranch and doing that because that's when it was it was busy and we were lambing. Um, and I always knew I wanted to keep the ranch going, but it was really hard economically to support uh, myself and my dad and, you know, really just pay the bills that, that come along with owning land. I, I took a lot of courses in ecosystem management, range management, some holistic management type courses and really started to learn more about the carbon cycle and, and really know, soil health and managing rangelands and really the importance that that plays and everything else. It really hit home, was really eye-opening in the drought of 2013 and 14, so not too long ago. The recent drought we had, it was you know, very apparent how important the carbon cycle is because our the system was kind of breaking where you know, we definitely had not enough water resources and we didn't plan, didn't really have a drought plan and all those kinds of things that really come with better management of the carbon cycle helps you 
handle those types of events. You're more resilient if you can handle more episodic weather extremes. And so that's when I really kind of took a step back and also dad's getting older. He still has a big say in a lot of the operation and probably has more time than I do. I said, we got to rethink this. We need to start investing in infrastructure to have a better plan to adapt to, to these changing conditions that we're only seeing more of. And then, you know, two years later, we had the wettest, one of the wettest winters on record. So definitely seeing that and seeing the importance of how you manage carbon affects all of that. Absolutely. Can you tell us more about how you manage carbon? Because we can't really see necessarily like the carbon itself yeah. moving from the atmosphere. Um, but if you could share more about the practices that you're doing and how you know that that is working with the carbon cycle and enhancing it. Sure. So it's you know, definitely doesn't happen overnight. It's, it's kind of a, a paradigm shift. And so taking a conventional classic kind of set stocking ranch operation and saying, okay, now I really want to manage for carbon. It takes a little bit of time. I mean, if you have the mindset, you, you first need to get some infrastructure in place, which organizations like the USDA, NRCS, Natural Resources Conservation Service, and RCDs are very helpful at sitting down and starting to draw up a plan. Um, I was fortunate to start working at Malt when we were kind of kicking off three demonstration carbon farms through the Marine Carbon Project and um, really getting to be a part of the, the plan writing and working with uh, the authors, the landowner, being out on the land, doing some soil sampling, looking at, um, okay, these are kind of our baseline conditions. Here's the practices we're going to go ahead and implement and um, kind of getting to follow those through. And by no means, you know, are they done? It's definitely an adaptive management plan and a work in progress. But it's great to just shift kind of your mindset, get on the same page and say, okay, here we go. So, you know, the, the first thing I did is I, I had to have a little bit more security. So I, the property I'm doing some of this work on is leased. And so that's a big challenge with a lot of ag lands in the state and in this country is so much of it is leased to make capital improvement investments to help do some of this work is challenging. Is that on the landowner or the lessee who wants to put that kind of investment in it without really security? So I, I worked on a lease first that actually incorporated some language about a carbon plan, knowing that, you know, the family that I lease from could potentially have to sell it. And, you know, at least I can say, well, I did what I could to try to improve that soil carbon or that, you know, the, the health of that, that landscape uh, and make it more resilient for the next maybe person that manages it. Hopefully I'll, I'll still be on board. But so I started uh, working with the NRCS and developing water infrastructure. That was the first thing I, I needed to get to really be able to do any of these other practices. If I'm going to plant a windbreak or a hedgerow, I'm going to need water. So the first thing as well as water for livestock to improve pasture management, timing of grazing, and more of a, a rotation to try to promote more desirable species, more perennial species. Also just be able to, to have a, a better eye on my livestock and kind of watch them while they're closer together instead of spread out all over the ranch because there was, you know, minimal fencing. So some things that have really helped in the technology side of things are things like electric fencing and solar water to be able to move water to higher elevations from things like springs and seeps that would historically only have been able to support a few animals. But with storage tanks and solar pumps, you can now move those to higher elevations and get more desirable grazing at the right time to kind of reduce thatch buildup and things like that. And also make those animals maybe eat things that 
wouldn't be their their favorite, but over time they they will start to improve that pasture by selectively grazing things that they desire, and then you can can have rest and recovery periods and do some seeding and other amendments. You know, so so part of part of my plan has been doing first water infrastructure. Uh, pasture divisions for more of a rotational grazing plan, uh, incorporating both cattle and sheep, and then working on buffering riparian zones to try to increase infiltration, have off-channel water so the livestock don't depend on streams and creeks and springs for water. So that's that's in a nutshell been what I've been focusing on. And then through NRCS, I've also got some some cost year funding to do seeding and trying to incorporate more pasture varieties and, and diverse species, things that have tap roots. So to trying to experiment with that a little bit and see what takes and just try to have basically green forage longer into the summer and have you know more palatable species and more diverse species because all that translates right back to your animal health. And if the livestock have a variety, just like with people, um, they do better because they select for what they know they need or what macro micronutrients they're lacking. Thank you for sharing all of that. It's, so it sounds like the infrastructure development is kind of the groundwork for so many of the things you have planned. And I, I did see I have access to some of your data on your, your carbon farm planning, and you do have the sequestration numbers, some of the modeling around the carbon rates associated with things like range planting or uh, prescribed grazing. What is it like to see those numbers associated with some of the things you're describing? Sure, and I know those those estimates based on the Comet Planner software, which is really a pretty user friendly tool. It was it was nice that I think Colorado State and NRCS helped create. I know Marine Carbon Project helped out with that too, and it's it's nice to see because otherwise, um, you know, I know those might be ballpark numbers, but you have something to go off of. So you're you're seeing that. If we do 20 acres of this this year, this might be the type of actual effect or impact we're having. And I think that combined with going back out and doing some soil sampling to compare those results with with what you're seeing, I think, you know, it, it's good. I know it's not perfect. And I know folks are still trying to work with, uh, with like a, a, a registry to really um, be able to credit the land stewards for doing this type of work. And it's, it's tricky to document. I know it's, it's hard, but you know, I think that it's nice to know that, okay, we have some sort of a baseline. This is what we're shooting for. You know, if we keep trying to get creative with different practices and add a little bit more diversity to the pasture, it's nice to see that's that, that software gives you a ballpark. So you know what kind of effect you're having, whether it's really small on the big scheme of things, um, at least you know you're maybe offsetting some of the work it took to get that point. Yeah, or even, you know, being part of a drawdown solution. It seems like, you know, they do add up all of the different practices that you're doing, create this cumulative impact uh, where you're really making a difference in our right. community. Right, and the, the other thing that's not shown in there is, you know, the co-benefits to things like wildlife and habitat. I mean, rangelands and pastures, provide all kinds of bird habitat, wildlife, wildlife corridors. You know, there's a, there's a lot of co-benefits that are kind of taken for granted in the way our, our public system works in our economy. And so I know that that's not easy to quantify. You know, payments for ecosystem services is something that's evolving through the carbon market and other facets. I mean, a conservation easement is, is one example of that. And even what 
you know, the work Fibershed's doing is, is trying to connect that link and almost be a marketing and payments for ecosystem services. Yeah, because those co-benefits are so important. And I'm, I'm curious from your perspective as a land manager, do you find what's kind of the motivating factor for you? I mean, you mentioned drought earlier and, and water holding capacity. There's the co-benefits sometimes includes like visual beauty and, uh, you know, really lush pastures. Or Is there any one thing that you find motivates you the most to do this work? You know, um, that's a good question. I think just, you know, first of all, it's an honor that I'm able to continue on the family ranch, even though it's, I'm having to do it a little bit on the side of, of another career, but I, you know, hope to one day be able to just, just be able to do that. But I was also, uh, you know, read a lot of Aldo Leopold and um, kind of the land ethic. And it's really, it's, it's an honor. And it's, I think it's part of the community. I think it's almost uh like medicine when you're out there and you actually do see something like, you, you know, you see wildlife in your pasture or you see, uh, you know, you raise a really quality product that you're really proud of and, and someone else sees the value in that or just that, you know, you do a project and you see the benefit directly to the, the pasture or how you're able to manage your animals and that, they, that they're doing better and you're proud of your animals. It's, <clears throat> I think it's just the pride of doing your own thing and being out on the land and really being fortunate to be, you know, outside. I have another job where I'm at a desk and, you know, sometimes it's hard to be at a, a desk and you realize you know, we're, you know, we're really fortunate to, to be able to tend to the land and be outside. And uh, so it's a little bit in my blood, I think, in genetics, but it's also, uh, you know, I see the value in, in you know, especially I have a, an eight-month-old son and, you know, hopefully trying to make this world a, a better place or leave it better than I found it. That's beautiful. And I, I did read in an earlier interview, you had shared that you uh, can look around and see windbreaks and pasture plantings that your ancestors planted 100 years ago, and that you're still seeing those. Um, I mean, they probably weren't using the term carbon farming back then, but do you see this as, you know, connected to that lineage? Yeah, I do. It's it's interesting cycle. You know, we got into this carbon farm planning and we're working on several different ranches and it didn't even really kind of resonate with me until we were out on the land doing some planning. And it's like, well, maybe we can continue that windbreak. And then it's like, look at that. Like they had the total foresight and it was more about survival in those days. But a hundred years ago, they were planting windbreaks. And like, how, how did we lose, how did that practice kind of stop for 40 or 50 years. Um, and, and maybe it was the economics or the technology and the markets just made it not worthwhile, but there's tons of, of windbreaks and shelter corridors that people planted a uh, hundred years ago, or even older. In some cases they used eucalyptus, which I find myself a little bit frustrated with when I'm trying to clean up the, the mess it makes, but still, you know, in a storm, that's where the, the livestock are on a hot day. That's where the, the livestock have access to shade and shelter. Um, and then the, you see all the homesteads and farmsteads all had windbreaks, many of them around here with, with cypress trees. And uh, so they had the foresight and the thought. And so it is a little bit of a cycle and it's interesting that it's, it's coming back to now we're trying to replant those. I even see cottonwoods that I think um, when they were trying to put people back to work after maybe one of the, the war periods, that um, like the CCC had planted. And, and so we're trying to, we're trying to circle back and do that again, um, which is interesting. Um, it, it is interesting. It makes you appreciate the hard work that folks did years ago when it was more subsistence farming and they had the foresight to go 
you know, water their orchard and those windbreaks by hand, I'm assuming, and do all the work of planting them. Um, but yeah, we, it might, you know, I've, we still have fruit from an orchard that probably my great grandfather planted and, and they had, basically they had pasture cropping going on. They were grazing under apple and pear trees, probably surviving off those and canning them and all those things that are kind of a lost art today. You just expect to go to the grocery store and get whatever you want, even if it's produced three quarters of the way around the world in a totally different climate. So it's, it's nice to see that, you know, we are getting back and seeing the value and and trying to reestablish some of those things. And I know they do them in other countries as well. They, they're maybe way ahead of us in some sense in European countries and places like New Zealand. For uh, listeners who might not be land managers or maybe coming from a different kind of background, could you share, kind of describe for us what a windbreak is and what that looks like? Sure. So there's, there's a lot of different varieties depending on what your goals and objectives are, where you are, your climate, what you're trying to get out of it. But so a windbreak is typically there's prevailing wind throughout the spring and summer that really dries out our pastures, at least in this climate. And besides the shelter benefit for like protecting your farmstead and just having less wind and things like that, if they're strategically placed across the land, kind of on contour or on a, in a saddle or basically a really windy place, they can help to protect some of that moisture in the soil and, and help extend that growing season. They also can provide shade in areas, not only to kind of capture moisture, things like you know, we get fog in July and August. And if you have trees, there'll be, there'll be green grass growing under it throughout the entire summer. They also provide the shelter and shade. So on a hot day, um, livestock can, can use those. And then you can also integrate things like, you know, pollinator species or uh, native trees that provide other co-benefits. I know folks are trying to reestablish oaks, um, which is, is really cool. And, and I know um, like Sonoma RCD is working on that right now, but it's really great to see the other co-benefits that, that windbreaks have, have, you know, things like nesting bird habitat. And, but, uh, you know, the, I think the gist of having them in a pasture setting is shelter, whether you're lambing, livestock, but then also helping with soil moisture retention, kind of getting back to that water holding capacity. And that windbreak, along with the landscape features you've been describing throughout our conversation, these are all part of the ranch and features of the working lands where you raise sheep. Can you tell us more about wool production at Jensen Ranch? Sure, so it's interesting, you know, my family I think has been raising sheep for about 50 years. At one point they had had a thousand ewes on five different ranches and in the 70s prices were kind of depressed on the, I mean like on the land side, so they were actually of making more with sheep than dairies and other livestock because there was demand and there was also uh, we were in the kind of cold war time so there was demand for wool and then there was also a subsidy actually for it and then there was really high interest rates so my family was actually able to buy a, a ranch basically just from sheep production back in the 70s and now you could never do that again <laughs> here with the, with the, the land values but we've traditionally raised, you know, commercial ewes, kind of a mix of white-faced dorset ewes that are that are crossed with Suffolk rams that create kind of a hybrid, really high-quality, strong, durable kind of lamb. That's you know, it's good not only for the the meat side and the the value there, but the wool is typically coarse. There has been some different variations in in breeding over the years with kind of different 
micron type breeds, but for typically the sheep out here in this colder, wetter climate are typically coarse, coarse wool. So, you know, there, there was years when the, the wool market was really pretty high. And then there was years where ranchers, not only could they not pay for their shearing, but they could hardly even find anyone to take it or the freight would cost way more than the value of the wool. I almost feel like there might've been one year where we shipped wool and it almost got a bill for it, I think. So it was just crazy to, for me to think like, what are we doing? You know, is it time to just get rid of the sheep? And, and a lot of people did. You'll see there's very few sheep ranches left because there were some some downturns in the economy and in the, the price, I think in the 80s and 90s that, you know, there was very little value to lamb or wool. So a lot of people just got out of it and said, I can raise cows and just put them out there and have less, less headaches. So we continued on maybe because we're too stubborn, just like our ancestors. And, and then you have seen some niche markets and opportunities come up and really seen others get more into that. But we've stayed pretty conventional and traditional and are just now kind of trying to kind of get creative about what to do. But in the meantime, I saw Fibershed kind of getting off the ground. I thought that's a great idea if they could get some sort of California wool mill or, you know, they're doing the feasibility study and at least connecting producers to supply chains. So, you know, I've connected with Marie and Rebecca and they've been really helpful at, you know, just trying to help connect dots and see where we can find opportunities where there's like this really great product close to a lot of consumers who want it, but how do you get it there? <laughs> you know, it's like most, most wool and at least my understanding, so much of it is shipped overseas. It just doesn't seem right. So and it's, it's the same with lamb too, you know, it's frustrating to see going to a grocery store, you know, 20 minutes from, from our ranch and see New Zealand lamb. And I mean, I, you know, I want to support farmers everywhere. It's, it's, we all have to work together, but it's just crazy to think that, well, how have we made it so challenging to get, you know, our own lamb to a place like this where you have consumers that would rather buy it direct from a farmer. Right. So there's a frustration on all sides there that you're describing where People would like to support local farmers, but aren't able to access finished goods. And farmers are also looking for ways to connect these dots and bring things closer to home. That's a big part of why the Koyuchi partnership is so exciting. As a home goods line that was founded in Point Reyes Station, they're now working with wool from your ranch and from Stemple Creek Ranch, uh, which are both roughly 12 miles from their flagship store. And by building that relationship, we know that this wool purchase is directly connected to your land and the land at Stemple Creek sequestering 470 metric tons of CO2 equivalent per year. And that equates to offsetting about 100 passenger vehicles. So in one sense, it's like this return to an older way of doing things, a small town supply chain. But in this economy and with the climate beneficial verification, it's pretty novel. Uh, so could you share more about how you see this product relationship and how it supports your work? Yeah, good, good question. It is, it is novel and it's, it's really cool. I almost, it was almost, you know, like something I never would have envisioned. And so it's really cool now to see it come full circle. And, and I know that was the name of Marie when she was getting her, her wool off the ground full circle and, and talking about the climate beneficial connection and trying to connect the circle. And it's really cool. It's, um, it's just nice to know that people value the real story and getting back in touch with the land and the products that come from it. It's just nice to see that kind of being a part of that and when it's happening and knowing that, you know, that's, I think the way that we're going to have to get back into 
more sustainable and regenerative land management is that connecting that link. So it's, it's awesome. It's, I've been excited to see what the products, you know, what they've turned the products into. And it's amazing the capabilities that kind of that lost art that, you know, some of these wool mills still have is, is that they can still do this and make these great products. And there still is equipment, although it's probably old and outdated that they're, they're making work and making into these great, great products. So it's, it's really cool to see. It's a great feeling. It's something that people, you know, dad for years had almost given up. It was like, and he sheared sheep for years himself. And it was more like, uh, well, we just sheared them cause it was a hygiene thing and the sheep did better. You know, they, they almost gain weight, you know, when you, when you shear them, then get a fresh clip, uh, helps kind of remove any parasites and, and things like that from them. So it was more of a hygiene thing, but it's like, this is a, this is a great product. There has to be some great uses for it. And so it's, it's really cool to see it come full circle and, and that there's, you know, a value added to it when people understand that, you know, we're, we're not getting rich off this. We're trying to put this back into the land. And so that's, that's nice to know. Right. And, you know, to honor the work that you're doing, like all those things you described, uh, making the land more resilient and changing your management practices and building out infrastructure. It's exciting to hear a product designer or a brand talking about that and, and expressing their support for those things that you're doing. And I think, you know, that's it's stepping out of their comfort zone a little and in, in a really healthy way. Through your work with Malt, um, you're a stewardship manager for Malt. And so you're working throughout the region and looking at conservation with uh, some of your neighbors, I would imagine. Uh, right. Do you hear a growing interest in these types of practices in carbon farming or um, that angle of it? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, uh, it's really gaining a lot of traction, especially I think with our proximity to the Bay Area, but also nationally. I mean, you're seeing, you're seeing even big ag realize that there's a, you know, there's a huge sustainability and even further, you know, opportunity or, or consumer drive to this way. It even start probably started when, you know, with kind of the organic movement. And obviously we're seeing that's where the consumer is spending and wants the best for their children and for everything. And as more and more maybe research comes out about the, you know, the benefits to that and our human's health, as well as the environment, big ag, as well as, you know, the small farmer, the consumers is driving that way. Through our work at Mall, we're seeing more interest in folks that, do want to get involved in, in carbon farming and that are interested in doing more stewardship practices on the land. We're fortunate that we, you know, we also have donors in the Bay Area that donate to Malt and other organizations for working land stewardship on private lands. It's, it's, there's not a lot of different ways you can do it, but we do see that it's not just about putting a, a conservation on a farmer ranch or conservation easement. It's more, it's also about the long-term partnership and that we're doing on going stewardship. So we're, we're actually working with NRCS, working with the RCD, the landowner, once we have an easement in place and implementing conservation practices. And it can be a really great partnership and we can get a lot of work done when funds are pulled from all different groups. And now we're even seeing the CDFA Healthy Soils Initiative. I know those demonstration projects are going in this year. And I hope that program, you know, continues to evolve. I know that I think there was Proposition 68 that is going to continue to hopefully support RCDs and other conservation practices on private lands that provide a public benefit. 
So there's, there's opportunities out there. We're seeing landowners that have an interest, especially because we can contribute or, or malt can contribute small grants that match NRCS funding to really help landowners get a lot of work done on the ground, whether it's infrastructure or riparian restoration um, at little or no cost to them because they're, you know, they're taking the initiative to do it. They typically have um, a lot invested in the planning and will chip in with, with labor and things like that. But it's great to see that we can help get some of these practices off the ground a little quicker than if you were trying to do them yourself, you know, with no help at all. Right. And I think that's also where with the climate beneficial wool model that Fibershed has, you know, developed this program to have the that product development piece, the value added goods be a contributor, one of those partners that can help support the practices. It definitely takes a, a community effort <laughs> to get these off the ground. Um, but we're so grateful for all the work you're doing and uh, everyone you just mentioned, all of the partners who come together and all of the land managers and uh, flock managers and designers who uh, make this possible and who are putting in the work to do this. Sure. Yeah. And you know, one other organization I didn't mention was Point Blue um, Straw, the Students and Teachers Restoring Watershed. And that was um, a project that I was actually a part of when I was maybe a fifth or sixth grader, <laughs> where we went out and um, just stuck willow sprigs, you know, in the sides of uh, creek banks and um, had a blast doing it in the mud. And then now I get to drive by those trees all the time and they're 30 feet tall. So it's really cool to see, like, just talk about a really simple carbon piece is just, you know, plant willow sprigs. I mean, they take a little bit of planning and foresight and thought um, about species and, and where you want to put them and management of them, but it's such an easy connection to just see the carbon. I mean, they grow so fast that, you know, it's just another example of, of a practice you can do with really minimal planning, just cutting sprigs off other trees um, in the wintertime and, and placing them. It's really beautiful to hear how conservation and these practices are so interwoven into your life. And I'm curious, how do you see carbon farming practices supporting your son and the seventh generation of management at Jensen Ranch? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's, it's definitely a lifestyle. He's going to get put to work as soon as he can because it, it, uh, you know, it takes a lot of work, but, uh, you know, I just hope that he can be a part of growing up the way I did and get to be out on the land and, and, and really, not take it for granted. I think it easy, it's, it's easy to, you feel like, well, everyone grows up this way. And then you kind of go, you don't have to travel very far to realize, wow, we're really lucky to, to grow up and have an opportunity to tend to the land. So I just hope that, you know, he can see what the generations before us did to plant trees and provide a place that's, you know, well managed and, and well taken care of uh, that, you know, hopefully he will be a part of doing the same thing and plant a few trees for the next generation to, you know, harvest the fruit from. Love is back in a trailer. Turn one way and it goes the other. Thank you so much, Jim. You just listened to the second episode of Soil to Soil, a podcast by Fiber Shed, which is a nonprofit organization based in Northern California. You're invited to learn more about our work and the concepts described here by visiting www.fibershed.org. There you can also sign up for our newsletter to hear our latest updates, and you can connect with us directly on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To learn more about Jensen Ranch, head to the Fibershed producer directory at fibershed.com forward slash producer dash directory. 
We also hosted a recent webinar on carbon farming and a look at the planning, modeling, and implementation processes. And Jim is featured in that webinar along with several other producers. So it's a really great way to learn more about this work across a range of scales and farms and ranches in our community. You can find that as a recording on our carbon farming education page. And I'll link that directly in the show notes. Some of the products we discussed that use Jensen Ranch wool include full circle wool sponges and batting, which can be found at www.fullcirclewool.com. And the Koyuchi products include dryer balls, mattress toppers, and duvet inserts. And those can be found at coyuchi.com. You can use a search bar and enter climate beneficial wool to find those. This is our second episode, and it would be so wonderful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. It will help more people find the show, and it really does make a difference. And we also welcome your feedback by email. You can write to us at podcast at fibershed.com. This podcast is produced by Fibershed in collaboration with Whetstone Magazine, and music has been provided by Aaron Harris, a member of our Northern California Fibershed community who's based in Petaluma, California. You can find show notes and more at fibershed.com. Love, love is.